0: Good morning and happy Sabbath, church family. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful for so many things. What a joy it is to walk each and every day knowing that you are with us through our ups, through our downs, that so long as we're reaching out to you, you never cast us aside. Father, I pray that you would come near to each and every one of us. Please be with all those that are listening in online. May we truly gain a grander picture of what is going on in the world and what is it that you desire us to do at this time in earth's history. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So, my sermon today is entitled More. And I think you'll understand as I get to the end of it what exactly I am I am hinting at here. But it's not a specific uh, request for anything in detail. It is it is what I'm aiming to do this morning is perhaps challenge some of you uh, to change your mindset or to reevaluate your mindset, your worldview, just just a little bit. You know, it's probably one of the harder things to do, right? Because we can even do something we don't particularly like to do for a short time, just to kind of silence a voice or make someone happy, right? But it doesn't mean that we actually enjoy doing it. It doesn't mean we're actually invested in the project or goal or whatever it is. Maybe someone at work uh, comes up with an idea and everyone in the office decides, yes, we'll do that. And you're not really 100%, but you're like, that's fine. It's only for two weeks or something like that. I can endure. But what about something that's supposed to be lifelong? For that, it does take a different kind of mindset and anticipation and, and reevaluating and planning ahead for what you believe will take place is actually important, hoping maybe it doesn't take place, but at least you're ready for it. I know. Uh, the birthing classes that Christina and I took when she was pregnant were very, very helpful for first-time parents. Like, I'd heard about the, I took biology, I read the textbooks, I sort of knew, but it's not the same as when you're actually there, and you're going through it, and you're experiencing it, right? We can all testify to this. We go to college, we learn so many classes, that's great, and then you get put in an an office, a laboratory, somewhere, and you have to actually put into pregnancy, like, whoa, this is a bit different than what I, you know, and you have to change, and you have to Understand, and that's important, but anticipation is good because it can help you prepare for what you may actually face, and this is a little bit of what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Now, I have a question for you. What is, or what are, we could say, maybe in the plural, some of God's great great missions for his people? What are some of the things God requires of his people, maybe throughout all of history? What are some things? If you can speak up, then I can hear you and I'll repeat it so that everyone can. Obedience. Okay. We would say obedience to God's moral law. Very good one. I would say this is true, not just of our generation, right? But we would say there's no generation that we can look in the Bible where God kind of said, oh, it's okay. You can murder people. That's all right. You know, you can hold that bitterness and hatred in your heart, or you can lie to one another. You can Break the Sabbath, that's okay. You know, we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. There may have been some moments where God tolerated certain things because the people were still in ignorance. He was trying to get them out of the world. They came out of Egypt. It took a while for God to kind of take Egypt out of them. And it seems to be something that was a continual effort, right, of the people going back and forth between idolatry. Uh, adultery was a big thing in the Old Testament as well, and so on and so forth. But the requirement, God's ideal has always been the same, that we obey his moral law. Very good. Any other thing? I think there's at least one more. We could say more, but... Dependence, dependence on God, absolutely. I would I would include that, Yes. Okay, sharing what we know of Jesus Christ or in the Old Testament of God, since Jesus wasn't revealed in the way that we know, but this is true, right? uh, In fact, God faults the people of Israel for the fact that they thought they were special, that they received the oracles and that they kept it just for themselves. You know, his ideal was that even the Gentiles and everyone outside the world would learn about his character and how much he loved and cared for them and that they would then turn to him and that his house would truly be a house for of prayer for how many? Just one nation or all nations, right? He wanted everyone to be included. So very good. I think these two and we could probably go on with with another huge list, but I would say these two, the 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 call to obedience to God's moral law and the call to spread The gospel message has been true for every single generation that has existed on earth since sin entered. However, and here's the the sub-question, the specific way in how this was to be achieved was actually different for every generation, wasn't it? So even though the goals and the mission was the same, how that was to be accomplished was very different. For example, what was Noah's mission? build the ark. Rain is coming. You've never seen rain before, but rain is coming. Build an ark for everyone to be saved who will go into the ark. Noah builds the ark. There's going to be a lot of rain. How many people listen to Noah? Even though he spent 120 years building and preaching on the flood, just himself and his family, right? No one else Came in. And I don't think, I know I've mentioned this before, but it, it, to me it's such a profound thought. I don't think that Noah was disingenuous in his call. I do believe, and heaven will show, I, I believe, that there were rooms on the ark that remained empty that could have been filled. That Noah made preparation of extra food for people at the end to come into the ark. And I cannot imagine how pleading he must have been that last moment as he went into the ark, knowing that this was the last chance people had. I don't think he was saying, come in, oh, you know, we'll make do. We'll, we'll scavenge some food, you know, like we don't have. I think he had planned and prepared and there was room and yet no one took him up on the offer, which is quite, quite sad. On the other hand, we could go forward into Israel's history and what, is, what did Elijah do? What was Elijah's mission? Idol worship, right, yeah? He had to combat that. But what was part of his declaration, his gospel message? Well, you don't believe in God, well guess what? Not like Noah, it's gonna rain a lot. There's gonna be no rain, until I say so. It's almost quite the opposite. You don't need to build an ark, you're just, there's gonna be like barely any food until you turn away from idols and acknowledge that God is the one who sends the rain and sends the sun, sunshine. And it's not the idol Baal, or any other idol that you may be worshiping. And Elijah's, uh, how could I say, his mission and his ministry was even quite different to Elisha who came just after him. And the spirit of prophecy makes this clear distinction as well. And we don't even need the spirit of prophecy for this. The Bible is clear to tell us that Elijah lived in such a time of such darkness and such idolatry that he had to flee and hide in the forest, in the caves, by brooks. I mean, he even had to go to Zarephath, like a Gentile nation to stay safe from King Ahab, whereas it seems that Elisha had more freedom. He could re-establish the schools which Samuel established, the school of the prophets. He visited them, and sure, Elisha may have given a rebuke here and there, but not in the same way that Elijah was giving rebukes. Their their ministry was quite different because of the times in which they lived, yet their goal again, spreading and sharing about who Jesus is, who, who God was, was the same. Let me just give you a, a few different examples, but I'm going to go quickly because this isn't the main point, but I want you to keep this in the back of your mind, that each in the, each generation has had its own unique mission. Uh, what about Israel in the wilderness versus Israel that went into the promised land? Different tasks. Different tasks now the israel in the wilderness was supposed to enter the promised land but they weren't ready yet unless we think that god sort of abandoned them i think it's quite the opposite god was very near to them and talking about dependence i mean 40 years you're going to learn this lesson of dependence because every day you're going to need me for food every day you're going to need me for water every day you're going to need me for shade every day you're going to need me for warmth every night you're going to need me for warmth i mean that is dependence every single day And I believe that their mission was actually to prepare the next generation to say, don't make the same mistakes we did. That's another sermon, though. I'm not going to go into that. And then you have Israel entering, crossing over the Jordan, conquering the land, something they didn't quite complete but was very much... Uh, different to the generation that came before. What about when Israel at different times and Judah at different times was was called, when an invading army was coming, at times they were called by the prophets saying, go out to meet them. God is with you. They will not overtake you. Be brave, be strong. And other times, like in Jeremiah, he's saying, surrender. Surrender to Babylon. It's not your time. God is not going to be with you. Surrender. Same goal to share about the message. Same ideal. You have to be obedient to the moral law but it looks very different in the specifics. And the question I have that I want you to keep in the back of your mind is, what might God be asking us to do in our generation? Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now let's go to another point, which is also important. God's faithful people in the Bible are described as what? If you could pick a word that's specifically in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what is that word? starts with the letter R. Remnant. Very good. Thank you, David. Remnant. God's people are described as remnant. Now remnant, when you hear that word, does that sound like a large majority or does that sound like a smaller minority? Which one? It's the latter, right? It's the minority. Remnant is something small that remains, that is left over after the large part is done. It's meaning a small percentage of God's true faithful people throughout Scripture. Now, here's a question for you to ponder, and we're going to go and take a look at a few texts. But do you think that as we approach closer and closer to the very end of time, do you think that that number is going to be increasing drastically, or do you think that number is going to be reducing? Reducing. Interesting. I agree. But let's take a look at a few passages in Scripture. Let's go to Matthew 24. This is an excellent passage on the end times, and particularly where God, where Jesus is providing prophecy on what will happen. I want you just to to hear in Jesus' own words here how he speaks of this time, and whether or not as we read it, you think, oh, this is showing that more and more people will be faithful to God, and it'll be easier and easier to follow God, or is it going to be quite the opposite? So let's read. I'm going to start Matthew chapter 24. I'll begin in verse 4. This is the disciples are asking him, remember what are going to be the signs of your coming. So this is the context. And it says, And the end of the age Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is, what? Not yet. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows, okay? And when you go to the Greek word there, it's meaning sort of like birth pangs, right? It's going to be increasing not only in quantity, but in intensity as well. So we're going to have more of them, and they're going to be greater than they were before. So this is, and this is just the beginning of these sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by some nations for my name's sake. All nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, this is such a, if I could pick a text for today's world. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. It's not that the love's not there, it's that the love isn't displayed. Because now you can't stop to help someone for fear that maybe they have an ulterior motive. Maybe they're trying to make you stop by the highway and they have someone else waiting on the other side. We live in such an evil world today that the love of many, as much as our heart desires, we tend to kind of, well, do I wanna take that risk? Times where if you went back probably 50, 100, 200 years ago, of course, every generation had times where You should be afraid and and scared, but not like, you know, Jesus here is saying lawlessness is abounding to such a great degree that the love of the majority is growing cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. So as we read this, do we see like, oh, it's going to become easier and easier to follow God, right? Right. No, it's quite the opposite. And the way in which he's, he's saying that many will be offended. Take heed that you don't be deceived because many are going to be coming in my name. And this this idea of many and many seems to imply that there are going to be fewer and fewer who are actually going to endure, which is the word in this passage. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Let's take a look at another passage in the book of Timothy. We'll go to First Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. No, nope, it must be 2 Timothy chapter 3. Yes, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. I'll start reading in verse 1. And this is very similar, maybe in a bit more detail. Paul here is warning Timothy, notice what the first verse says, but know this, that in the last days, Easy times will come. Perilous times will come. Okay, I'm trying to do this so that you remember when you leave today. Easy, uh, sorry, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. So they see the good, and then they hate it. That's what a despiser is. Someone who despises something. Despises of good. Traitors. Headstrong. Haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Now we make the big point here. I think this is a very good description of our world at large. But again, here verse 5 is telling us that they have a form of godliness. This is amongst professed believers of God. For of this sort, verse 6, are those who creep into households, make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the, of the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. So Janus and Jambres, I had to look that up, but this is as uh, Jewish history uh, recalls that these were the two men that withstood Moses in the courts of Egypt in Pharaoh's court. When Moses apparently threw down his staff and it became a serpent, uh, the, the saying goes that the, the two Egyptian uh, chief of what would we call the magicians, the astrologers, you know, so on and so forth, they uh, threw down their stars and they also became serpents. So these are the names that are attributed to them. And this is the kind of, the kind of um, mindset, if we will say, that is being described of those who are living in the last days when the perilous times come. That they resist the truth with such animosity. They say, we don't need you. We don't need your God. We can do just fine without you. And it gives us a description, perhaps even in more detail, than Matthew 25 does. What about Luke 18? Luke chapter 18, this will be the last text we look at here, very quickly. Luke 18, Jesus says something very interesting. Luke 18, verse 7 and 8. Of course, this is a parable of... This uh, widow, that is, we often call it the persistent widow, right? She comes to this judge and she's asking for someone to avenge her so that she could get justice from her adversary. And uh, we can read from verse 6. It says, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. In other words, he's saying this is a worldly judge, right? He's just saying, I'm going to grant this woman her request just so that I don't have to deal with her and have her coming here every single day. And asking me, and he said, so can you hear what he said? Someone who's unjust and who lives mainly for themselves is still willing to do this. How much more so then, Is saying, verse 7, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? The fact that Jesus even has to pose this question makes you wonder, well, how many faithful will there actually be? Because if it's, if it's a majority or if it's at least a large minority, right, let's say 40% of the population, that's not, that's not a majority, that's a minority, but it's still a large portion of the population, let's say 40% will have faith, would Jesus really have to ask this question when I come, will anyone have faith? the fact that he's asking this really shows you what kind of times we are living in slash headed towards. Remember, in Matthew 24, if we keep reading, I'm not going to go back there, but it says, as in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. Now, he's talking there in the context of people are eating, drinking, and life goes on as, as normal, but then the flood came and they were all destroyed. But I think in there, there's also another another kind of hint at it, and that's that God's faithful will be in the vast, vast minority. I'm not saying it'll be just one family, don't get me wrong, with, with, with some children. I think it will be more than that. I think Scripture tells us it always refers to God's remnant people. It doesn't say remnant family, uh, just one. But I do think that that analogy can be made, that in Moses' time, he alone was found faithful, and at the end of time, there will be only a small group, not a large group, that is faithful. How drastically, here's a question to think about, how drastically would we change our lives if we knew something was going to happen 120 years from now? And I'm not sure, I don't believe that Noah was told when he was told, build the ark, it'll take you 120 years. Probably because God knew that if he told him it'd take 120 years, Noah would procrastinate and not get started when he should. So he probably told them, start building. Now, no doubt, the first few months, maybe a year or so, Noah was just planning, drawing up the plans, probably taking a look at what his finances are to see how he can support because we're told that he did hire help uh, from the spirit of prophecy to help build the ark. So he invested everything he had and was working towards it. I, I could anticipate, I could be wrong in this as well, but unless Noah was extremely wealthy, which may be true, but if he wasn't, no doubt he would have had to build for a time and then take rest and work for a while to save up money so that he could then go out and build and get materials and hire people to do certain things for him so that he could build this ark. And this went back and forward until the 120 years were complete and until the ark was finished. And who knows, maybe the ark was finished a few years earlier and he just was able to preach for the last few years. We don't know the exact specifics. But I'm wondering, and... and, I raise this hypothetically because I truly believe we won't be here in 120 years. I hope that by God's grace, we will all be in heaven. But how drastically would your life change if Jesus was to return in five, in 10 years' time, in less? Maybe a little bit more, but you would still be alive. Would something big change in your life? So let's go back to that first question that I put in the back of your minds when I was talking about the general mission versus the specific mission. So what would you qualify as maybe a specific mission for our generation today? I'm not sure that I have an exact answer. I'm being honest with you, partly because I don't believe the Bible addresses, by the way, at the end of time, this is what the generation, you know, we don't read a text that specifically. We have some general, again, uh, general descriptions. We could go to maybe Revelation chapter 3 and read the message to the church of Laodicea. This would be something worth looking, that we have lost perhaps our first love and we need to return. We think we have need of nothing, but we actually need to turn back to God and buy from Him. We could go to the three angels' messages and partly there it says that the first angel, what, preached, having the everlasting gospel, goes to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. But again, this I feel is a very general, yes, we do that, but the how, the very specifics, we aren't exactly told. We could go to Hebrews 10, verse 25, and we could read the text that it says, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but all the more, Paul says what? As you see the The day approaching is saying that God's people should gather less and less as we get closer to the end of time, or is he saying God's people should be gathering more and more as we approach the end of time? It's the latter. Again, more as we approach the end of time. And it's interesting to me that as I look at Adventist history from when we began to where we are now, it seems that we are meeting less and less. I'm just raising that question I'm not just talking about sabbath and prayer meeting I'm I'm talking about everything group studies and 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 events and and evangelistic meetings that used to last for months where everyone would come out every single evening seems like nowadays like oh we don't do that anymore we don't meet on on friday nights to start sabbath together as a church I'm not saying we have to but I'm just saying think about it if this trend continues and 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 as we as we get older and as we see, my impression is that the majority of the Adventist church, at least in the West, I can say, at least in the West. I can't speak for other countries, but my, my my guess from what I see from the limited places I've been in the West, in Australia and in the States and a little bit in Europe, is that the main service that people come to all week long is just the divine worship service. They don't stay for Sabbath school. They don't come for Sabbath school. So that's once a week. What What's going to happen with their children and their children's children. COVID has made it very convenient now for us. And I'm not trying to put a plug in for that. There's, there's some legitimacy that is there to stay home, to be extra safe, particularly if you're at risk, or especially if you're not feeling well, please don't come. But it's given a lot of people excuse, well, now I don't even have to go at all. I can watch from the comfort of my bedroom. I can watch from the comfort of my couch. I can watch is that what Paul is here asking us to do? Is that something that we can foresee is going to have excellent ramifications for us as a people as far as doing mission work for God and sharing the gospel? If I huddle down in my, my little place and I just push a button, is that what the gospel commission for us today has become? I don't think so. So let's get to the main point that I want to share here. This is a point that has profoundly influenced me. And uh, I hope that it will get you to start thinking about this mindset change. But this this is something to to contemplate. If you need, and this is just a logical principle that applies. And I'm sure pretty much all of you are aware of it. Which is why you you will see where I'm going with it. But let's say you were in a group of people... And you had to raise a thousand dollars for a certain project, whatever it is. i 'm going to leave it very, very vague. But your group of people has a hundred people in it. Is that feasible? Sure. I mean every person gives ten dollars. you give you can collect the thousand dollars relatively quickly and relatively without much cost, much detriment. I mean, for $10, what, you could skip lunch one day instead of buying lunch and say, I can give to this project, I think it's a worthy project. If everyone did that, you're done. In one day, you could probably collect all $1,000 and it wouldn't really hurt the pocket that much. Let's say you had to raise $1,000 for the project, but all of a sudden now you don't have 100 people in your group, you only have 10. Ooh. Okay, now it's on average, $100 per person. This is this is more than just maybe skipping a meal and paying $10. Now we have to say, be a little bit more intentional. What if the project is so worthy, but you're the only one? Now you have to raise all $1,000 for yourself so that you can give to this project if this is the amount that you decide to do. What I want you to notice is that the logic behind this is the fewer and fewer people you have, the more that is required of those people to accomplish the goal. We all know this, right? And it's not just this example in particular was, was just using money, but any goal that exists out there, whether it's something you set yourself or whether it's something that's set by your family, your workplace, wherever it is, the church, it's always a goal where when we come together, we can do more together, but you always have to be more intentional, give more effort, give more money, give more time, give more to fulfill this goal and mission. It is extremely important. More commitment is required when you have fewer people to accomplish something very, very large. And I'm here to tell you that the gospel must go to the whole world. Now think about the logic of this. You have just told me that as you see us approaching the very, very end of time, you see God's followers decreasing in number, not increasing in large amounts. If that's the case, then logic itself should tell you that more is gonna be required of me. More is gonna be required of me to accomplish this goal. Now, I do want to leave place that it's not just on our shoulders, praise the Lord, right? The Holy Spirit is gonna do a wonderful work and there is gonna be a period where the Holy Spirit is poured out will be with God's people, will give them a power and a boldness, which they perhaps didn't have before, much like the disciples didn't have it before the Holy Spirit fell on them as well. However, I don't believe, you know, sometimes I think we, we misinterpret or, or we misunderstand what it is exactly that the Holy Spirit is going to do when the Holy Spirit is poured out. I think sometimes we have the mistake, mistaken impression that We're just going to be doing the same things we always do. And when the Spirit falls, instead of having one or two baptisms a year, I'm saying this average, we've had more than that this year, but, you know, an average church, let's say one or two, all of a sudden when the Holy Spirit falls, we're just going to do exactly the same thing. And all of a sudden, 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 people are going to get baptized every single year. Really? Is that what we really believe? That's not what I believe. That's not how I read Scripture. The Holy Spirit falls primarily on the individual. It's falling to change my heart, to change and maybe prioritize my priorities. Sorry, not, not prioritize, but reorganize my priorities so that the things which actually matter, I say they will matter, and the things which should be peripheral should perhaps be placed in the periphery. The Holy Spirit doesn't fall on me so that I can continue doing the same thing I'm doing and all of a sudden I just become more successful for Jesus. In Matthew 9, our scripture reading, what does Jesus say? The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to God that he sends more laborers, yes. But it also means unless you want the crop to spoil, the few laborers that there are are going to have to do more. More than what's required of them. More than maybe just their average day work, work day. They might have to stay an hour later. They might have to contribute a little bit more. They may have to sweat a little bit more in the hot sun. Take a shorter break. Do something so that the entire harvest can be gathered in. I don't know exactly what God is asking you to do. It is not my intention to give you that exact detail. Although, to be honest, I wish God would just give me a dream or, 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 you know, open up a book with with golden letters that could just tell me, you know, Andy, I want you to do A, B, C. Wouldn't that be so nice? (laughs) I'm sure we would all wish for that. But maybe part of it is that we have to discover the Here's the thing, maybe the reason God doesn't do that is because he wants us to continue exercising our dependence on him, of constantly going back to him, of constantly, how should I say, nurturing that walk with him so that when he asks us to do something, we can say, I'm ready, Lord. I don't particularly like to, I don't particularly want to, I don't particularly feel like I have the time or the energy, but you know what, because you've asked me and because I know you love me, and because I love you, I'll do it. I'm not trying to say that the few of us that are left, as I say, as as, as history goes on and as God's followers get less, that we should overwork ourselves as well. Do not do not misunderstand me here. Ellen White has a lot of a, a lot of strong words to say for the way that James White uh, overworked himself, but I think that. What we suffer for from when I say "we," I'm just meaning our generation in general, and particularly I'm, I'm referring to a lot of the younger people uh, in, in the congregation today, I think we suffer from thinking that giving one hour once a week is sacrifice, which, to be honest to me, is like, no, it's not. But if I'm honest, I could also say at one point in my life, I did feel that way. So what has changed? my mindset has changed. That's the only thing. I've allowed God to do things in me and still need to allow him to do things in me because I'm by no means perfect, but that's where I am today and I still have a ways to go. But God is asking you to go a ways as well and he asks you only to take one step each and every day with him it's evident to me from the way in which the Bible describes this time of the end that God's people cannot afford to be half-hearted, if I can use that word, half-hearted, where God's mission is there, but God's mission is sort of peripheral, right? My, My time on Facebook and YouTube and Netflix and once I watch even the news and all the documentaries I want to see and and once I get all my reading done and and everything, then I can invest the time that I have left in God's mission. I don't see that the, the gospel commission will ever be completed if that's our perspective. I think it needs to be, okay, God's mission is first and supreme and everything else, for the most part, is peripheral. Everything else is peripheral to some degree. Now, I'm not saying that Everything on YouTube is bad, especially when you need to fix something. YouTube is a great place to go. I go there often. I'm not saying that pursuing a house, a car, investing are necessarily bad things. But if this is what is solely absorbing all of your time, energy, and effort, and you have very little to no time to spend on the mission of God then you need to spend some time in serious reflection and say, will I be ready? Remember what I said in the morning, will I be ready? If God's people at the end really are going to be doing more, am I going to be ready now to leave all of this behind? And if I don't live that way today, what makes me think that tomorrow I'll be ready? If I'm not at least taking a step in the right direction today, what makes me think that tomorrow I'll be willing to do even more? Because today I'm walking, but I assure you at the end of time, we're going to be running. It's not going to be a walk during those last closing scenes where everything is happening super rapidly and where God's people need to speak up with a boldness that, you know, as Ellen White says, there will be such a revival that has not been seen since apostolic times. Never forget that life can be very simple if you want it to be. Reflect on that sentence as well. Life can be simple if you want it to be. I'm not saying life can be easy if you want it to be. We all wish life was easy. But life can be simple. What I mean is that there is so much out there in the world that seeks to distract. So much that it's like, you need this new gadget. You need this. You need this. You need this. This will make your life easier. This will make you happier. Most of that stuff, I'd say 80 to 90% of that stuff, maybe more, doesn't really do that. What do you need? Faith first, relationship with God. That's what brings true happiness, true fulfillment. Amen. Family, friends, especially godly family and friends. If at all, you can surround yourself with them, which is why church is a great place. Because especially for some of you who have had to leave family or whose family doesn't see the same way as you do, this becomes your family. We are the family of God, and we will be, by God's grace, for, together forever forever. In heaven, I can't imagine anyone in heaven missing Sabbath school. I can't imagine that. If we have it, and if we don't, we'll start Sabbath school up there. (sighs) But life is simple. If if you if you want it to be, there are the certain necessities of life, and beyond that, you know you could live without a TV. The majority of the human race throughout history has survived without a TV. They've survived without iPhones. They've survived without laptops. I'm not saying these things are inherently evil. What I'm saying is, look at how much time you're spending on it. Look at where your priorities are. And if if they are in control of you more than you're in control of them, then you're the one with the brain. Do something about it. Get on your knees. Pray about it. Ask God to help and ask God to lead you. And He will because He loves you and He wants you to be in heaven. The biggest issue, as I've mentioned, that I see is that if I'm not getting involved in church now, if I'm not sacrificing now, if I'm not investing now, then I'm the one that's missing out. What am I missing out on? Firstly, I miss out in in the general sense, and this is why we encourage people to go on a mission trip if they've never been on a mission trip, is you miss out on the experience of seeing God work, not in a general sense, but in a very specific sense. I would hope that all of us if I was to ask you do you have a time in your life where you felt that God was especially near to you asking you to do something or you did something for God and you saw him come through in miraculous ways I would hope that the majority of the hands will go up I'm not going to ask the question but if you don't have that experience God is still there he wants to give you that experience don't miss out when you hear that still small voice saying can you please do this please don't do that it's not for your best interest as we follow him day by day, step by step, and as he gives us the strength to do so, we will have experiences with him which will carry us through the times when we are betrayed, when we are thrown into prison, when we are thrown into tribulation, when we may be killed for the gospel's sake. We will always remember, at least I know God was with me every step of the way. But I think in a greater, to a greater degree, what we miss is we miss out on being the person that God wants us to be. None of us are perfect here, but God is working with us. Why is God working with us? He's not just working with us because he wants us to be these perfect individuals in a world that is very imperfect. The goal of having us become more like Christ is because... God knows that if more people were like Christ, more of the world would be reached. Not more who profess to be like Christ. Notice the difference. It's not just the profession, it's actually being more like Him. And when we don't say, well, I don't want to sacrifice here, I don't want to invest here, I don't want to commit there, I don't want to be more intentional here. We're missing out on becoming the person that God may, may see us becoming maybe a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, however, however long time may last. And that, I think, is the greatest. I mean, that gets me. That God has, has a, a place for me, has a mission for me, something that I can do, but something I'm not ready for yet. But if I follow him every day, when that time comes, I will be ready. God will strengthen me. God will pour out his Holy Spirit on me, maybe in a way that he hasn't before, maybe in a way that he could not if I did not start that journey with him now. And that's my appeal to you as well. Don't miss out on becoming the person that God wants you to be. Don't miss out on the experiences that will follow you along the way. And don't miss out of the greatest experience of all, which is to, if need be, lay down your life for Christ. Maybe not in death, when I say lay down your life, I mean just live sacrificially. God needs more people, I think, at the end who are willing to live for him than to die for him. I am convinced that God is asking for more, for more of us, especially as we approach the end of time, to be more intentional, to be more committed, to give more of our time, money, effort, re- whatever resources it may be, to encourage others to also do so. And it's hard to encourage someone else to do that if you yourself aren't doing it, right? Come out, give sacrificially, but i don 't give sacrificially. Well, we should come and meet together, but i don 't come to any of the meetings and i don 't come to sabbath school. I mean, yeah, you should be doing that, but i 'll just stay at home it 's very easy to do that, but it, it doesn 't work it's not it doesn 't bring forth bring forth uh, any results. I want to end here uh, with the spirit of Qu- prophecy quote in christ object lessons that you have in your bulletins here it says uh, so this is Christ Object Lessons page 355 and notice in how she is describing the Holy Spirit falling upon us she says every wholehearted earnest sacrifice for the master's service uh, by every wholehearted earnest sacrifice for the master's service our powers will increase while we yield ourselves as instruments for the Holy Spirit's working the grace of God works in us to deny old inclinations to overcome powerful propensities and to form new habits As we cherish and obey the promptings of the Spirit, our hearts are enlarged to receive more and more of His power and to do more and better work. Dormant energies are aroused and palsied faculties receive new life. When the Holy Spirit falls, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples. The Holy Spirit, to think that, what is the Holy Spirit waiting for? Is it that the Holy Spirit is not willing that everyone should know about God now and just in some future time something's going to click with the Holy Spirit oh now I want everyone to be to know about God I mean surely we don't believe this the Bible certainly doesn't support that so what is the Holy Spirit waiting for if not for me to say I'm willing it's not about me it's about you and Lord please help me because we live in a very dangerous world and we live with so many distractions. And we of all people know how weak we are as individuals. But Lord, please help me. Lord, help me to make you first in my life every single day. And wherever that leads me, as long as I know you you are with me, that's all that I need. I pray that this will be your prayer this morning as it is with mine. And that we would start at least anticipating the fact that more, here's a, here's a way that I, I would love to sum up the, the, the entire sermon and to have you thinking about it later this afternoon after you have lunch. And it's something that has been going on in my mind for, for several weeks now, which is this. I went through each generation about how it had different specific tasks which God wanted them to accomplish in their generation. And some of them were easier than others, we could say. By no means any of them, I think, were easy, but some were easier than others. Could it be that the generation at the very end, God will require more of that generation than he has of any other generation that has come before? Read some of the stories in the Old Testament. If you were around then, what would you have done? And then if you're around today, which you are, what is God asking you to do? Does it compare to what some in the Old Testament had to do? Most of the stuff, let's be honest, no, it doesn't. But some of the stuff that God may ask us to do definitely will be. And if we aren't thinking in our minds, wow, like I need to be ready to to do more, to be more than I am, to do more than I am doing without killing myself but definitely doing more, maybe letting some things go in my life that I don't really need so that I could be the person God wants me to be Maybe God is asking this generation at the end to be more, to do more than any other generation that has existed and maybe that's why the Bible has been preserved so that we can read their stories and so that we can know that God was with them every time that they obeyed and that they listened. God was merciful when they fell and he forgave provided they were willing to turn back and he can do the same thing with us. But let's get ready because when that time comes we need to be confident walkers before we can run confident walkers before we can run. You don't go from taking your first steps to running the next day. Let's sing our closing song and then I'll end with benediction.
1: Hymn number 510.
0: Dear Heavenly Father, I I thank you for the times in my life and in our lives that we have followed your still small voice and we have taken that step. We have seen you work in amazing ways and Father, I pray that you would forgive me and forgive us for the times where we have ignored that voice or pushed it aside. Father, please be with us, help us. May your spirit not only change us, but may it comfort us and encourage us. May we encourage one another. We are all in the same boat, as it were. We are all sinners. We are all in need of your divine grace. And we all want to be in heaven. Help us to show each other the love which you show to us each and every day. Help us to be the people you would have us to be. Help us to do the things you would have us to do. And help us, Lord, as some have been on this journey longer than I have. I thank you for them, Lord. I pray that they would be an encouragement and a testimony to those of us who are perhaps younger and are still towards the beginning of our journey. It's never too late to start this journey. And I pray, Lord, that no matter where we are, we would be willing to follow you all the days of our life. And that we would be the people you would have us to be, that you would have us. Do more, perhaps, as we come to the close of this earth's history with kindness and gentleness, but at the same time with boldness that others may see that you are truly a loving God and that while the doors of probation are still open and while mercy still lingers, that they can reach out their hand and you will gladly grab them and hold them in your hand with a grip that the enemy will never be able to go through. I pray, please work in us and work through us. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated.